0: Welcome to the Econ Pop Podcast, where we sift through the haystack of popular culture to find the needle of economics within, and then stab you with it. I'm your host, Andrew Heaton. Our website is econstories.tv, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, or find links and other content related to today's conversation. Joining me today are Steve Horwitz, the Charles A. Dana Professor and Chair of the Department of Economics at St. Lawrence University, and Paul Cantor, the Clifton Waller Barrett Professor of English at the University of Virginia. And I'm Andrew Heaton, a baritone. Steve, Paul, welcome back.
1: Good to be here as usual. Yeah, ready to go. Uh,
0: So today we're discussing It's a Wonderful Life in conjunction with banking and whatever else we can dredge up that has to do with economics. Uh, As we're we're pre-recording some of these, I assume that this will probably coincide with the holiday season. And uh, so we'll we'll be sort of a nod to Christmas and economics, which are intertwined in America very much. Uh, Although we will be doing it from the banking end. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I grew up on this film. My mother loves this film. And so uh, we watch this as a family, by which I mean she watches it uh, while we sort of putter around the kitchen uh, every Christmas, although this is the first time since childhood I've actually sat down and watched it. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure what your experiences were like, but in my case, being an incredibly repressed, uh, emotionally subdued wasp I can't actually express emotion when I should, but when I watched this film, I teared up. It was really awkward because I was on a train, and then I had to explain to people that I was making a podcast. <laughs> uh, it was a very, very strange thing. But anyway, I, I felt that the film was poignant, uh, albeit dated. Uh, what did you
1: guys think? Well, I'd say the line between poignant and treacly is a thin one. <laughs> because, <laughs> and this film
2: crosses uh, it.
1: It does. <laughs> It does. You might you might be a repressed wasp, uh, Andrew, but you know this this unrepressed Jew could only take so much of this movie. <laughs> yeah, that may not strum the same
0: chords for you that a big yeah. big uh, from from. And are are you from a small town, Steve, or are you
1: from no, a I grew larger up area? The, I grew up in the suburbs, right. In fact, it's funny because I don't. I mean, I've seen bits. I don't know if I've ever watched this movie start to finish before. I've seen bits and pieces over the
2: years. I don't think I've ever watched it start to finish. I had the same impression that I realized I'd never seen the film before. I'd never only seen those uh, clips from the end they always show. I can't imagine I could have sat through this film all the way. (laughs) It's so long. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it, it, is, it is very long. Like it occurred to me because I, I, what I think what everybody has seen is the very last iconic scene where George Bailey has got the money, or they're, they're giving him the money. All, all the, uh, all of his neighbors are coming in to support him, and then his his daughter says every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. So everybody's seen that, um, and so I was sort of expecting that to come a lot faster, and realized that what I had thought was prelude was a good maybe half of the movie. Uh, you know, this this whole backstory bit, we're we're into it maybe you know forty minutes before we're into present day with George Bailey if that
2: yeah it's the, the film is heavily cut when normally shown uh, the film was orphaned the copyright on it lapsed and people just showed it at will and I'm sure they just cut it up mercilessly and yeah. it's a good thing they did
0: oh so <laughs> I might have actually seen like a quicker
1: version at some point yeah. in my life undoubtedly it's, because yeah, I, I mean it's it's two hours and ten minutes which for, for the time right Paul was was a, was a pretty long film Absolutely and yeah.
0: by today's standards is incredibly a, long which yeah that would make sense then because my my attention span as an eight-year old kid was far <laughs> less than it is today as a 30 year old man. Um, so that would that would make sense if I, I'd seen bits although oh, it, so you probably it, saw it broken up with commercials too also true yeah yeah um, and uh, yeah so it it, it, it it is a longer film although I, I will say I did like it I realize it's cloying. Uh but it's but it's older and I think that uh I, I don't know, I don't know if that many truly dark films from that era. I guess uh if, if we did like Citizen Kane or something, you've got ones yeah. that are a little bit more intense that get into the the pathos and the um, the twisted nature of a person a bit more. But for what it is I, I liked it. Um actually came out
2: simultaneously with William Myler's Best Years of Our Lives. Uh, which blew it away at the box office and at the Oscars, and is a very dark film as well. This is right after World War II, and Weiler and Kapper were coming back from World War II having worked on films for the government. They weren't in the best of moods.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well,
0: one of the things that I that I uh, think is is telling for us is that there are a couple of I- iconic um, elements and people in the film that, that speak to the mindset of what was going on back in the, I guess this is late 40s? Yeah,
1: 46 comes 40, out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, the, the war has just concluded. Um, but w- what I was thinking is that the, the uh, is it Henry Potter or Harry Potter? No, it's Henry, it's Henry it's Potter. Ha- what, what, am I, what am I thinking? It's Henry Potter. <laughs> It'd be a very different film if not. Um, is this, uh, he's uh, handicapped and obese and a banker and evil. Uh, And uh, I think one thing that's telling about that, which is a little bit off the beaten track for economics, is that um, obesity is now a poor people problem. It used to be a rich people problem. In fact, if you go back uh, just 40 years, if you were a heart doctor, that was considered kind of greedy because you were only going to be catering to the needs of rich people. Uh, And now it's flipped around where um, Potter today would, would, of course, be a svelte, um you know, very, very fit guy who's probably a hedge fund manager, uh, with a really um high powered wife. Uh, and it would it would be a very different mindset. Look at the,
1: the, yeah, the Wall of... Street movies, right? The yeah, Street like
2: the the Wall Street movies, exactly. Or
1: or the Wolf of Wall Street one with the. I mean, come
2: with the territory. Once Capra wanted Lionel Barrymore, that's what you get.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, and and he's cast right out of the Monopoly board, right? I mean, he's basically the Monopoly man, you know. From
0: (laughs) yeah, you're right. He's he's the Monopoly man plus about forty
1: pounds. Yeah. Right. And 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 behaving the way that that game suggests, you know, people behave
2: too. Lionel Barrymore had famously played Scrooge on the radio, and that's really why uh, uh, Capra chose him. Ah.
0: Okay, I, I didn't realize that. Well, um, so to, to take it to the banking uh, element, which is what we're going to be exploring in an econ pop, um, what I what I thought was very interesting about it is that you, you simultaneously have a very good and very bad impression of bankers, uh, and and I've I've got some friends that work for the American Bankers Association, and they're they're very very emphatic about pointing out that most of their members are small local banks, and that. You know, the kind of the the George Bailey soliloquy that he gives about, you know, we're putting a a roof over the house of the people in town and, you know, helping them start the business and all that, that that tends to be on the local level. That's a loan that's being given out by your local banker. Um, And at the same time, you also have the just evil plutocrat character that you're seeing at the same time. Um, A question that I can have that'll help inform the discussion henceforth is. I do not know the difference between a bank and a savings and loan.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: although this seemed to be paramount to the organizational structure of both in the film, can you guys elaborate it and, and kind of suss out what that is?
1: I can. I can say a little bit though. The distinction today doesn't mean much, and in, in the time this was done. Savings and loans were pretty much as they're described in the film. That was they were small, they were local, and they were focused on mortgages. So essentially, you just as there's that one scene where they describe it, right? You collect all the money from your neighbors, you put it together in the bank, you lend it back out to them so they can so they can build houses with it. And and this and savings and loans were essentially you know vehicles for 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 mortgages Um, until what you know in the 1970s and the inflation of the 70s when a lot all these savings and loans had these 30-year mortgages. At fixed rates, and then when inflation started to go up, they couldn't. Ah. You know, bank the, the savings and loans were 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 only earning three, four, you know, four or five percent on their loans, but couldn't acquire funds for for that rate. And so, they savings and loans got squeezed by by inflation. That's what gives us adjustable rate mortgages. But what also began to happen is that we opened up those banking market. The the banking markets got more fluid, more competitive, <laughs> and some of these distinctions began to fade. There there is one one thing I will say there is one scene in the movie that does point to one of the important differences which is savings and loans generally were savings banks that is you didn't you couldn't get a checking account right you had a, you know an old passbook savings account and if you read your passbook savings accounts closely they have a 30 day or a 60 day clause in them that says that at the bank's discretion they can Ask you for thirty days or sixty days before they give you your money, and there's that one scene, right, where 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 uh, the Jimmy Stewart character says, "Well, you know, you, I, I can I can invoke my sixty days, right?" Uh, and and uh, and and you know they have, they all kind of acknowledge it. He doesn't want to do it because it's a sign of weakness, but again, that's that's the nature of a passbook savings account. So savings and loans normally historically didn't issue checking accounts. Again, a lot of these distinctions have faded away today, but the idea was local, mortgages, savings, as opposed to checking and commercial lending. And okay.
0: um, and just out of curiosity, I, I used to work for a co-op when I lived in England that was sort of a, a non-profit group that was designed to help members and that sort of thing. Did, did, would, would there be any co-op element to it or were they designed to be for profit for the people running
2: them? Uh, no, there was a co-op le- uh, element in that uh, you were shareholders and right. actually could vote on yep. the executives, and yep. uh, uh, they were a bit like Credit Union. Unions, that's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, okay. Yeah.
1: So I mean, they, you know, that sense that there is there's an accuracy here. So so um, so then you've you've got. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please.
0: No, no, go. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say. So so we've got. Um, George Bailey running the, the savings and loan, which, as you point out, is, is a localized, small entity, primarily dealing with mortgages. It's not really into the commercial side of things. And then, on the flip side of the coin, we have our, our archetypical, evil, traditional uh, banker um, who is completely removed. And there, he has wonderfully evil lines throughout the film that are, that are really poignant. Like he's trying to think, like it's something like, I suppose you should give uh, my fortune away to miserable fail- failures like you and your idiot brother. Uh,
2: which is pretty good. You're running, you running a business or a charity ward. Yeah, that's the best line in the film. are yeah. you running a business or a charity ward? The most accurate line in the film. Well, right.
0: and then and then later he talks about like you know I suppose I should give mortgages out and and make the uh make the working class lazy rabble as you have done or something like that. But it's an incredibly yeah. heavy-handed, um, classist statement that he's making. Uh, what what I think is interesting though is that. We we don't really get into what bankers are actually doing in there now. I'm clearly in the film. This this man is a, a tortured evil old man, and, and George Bailey's the the gold-hearted person. But uh, particularly today, um, given that these distinctions have melted, uh, there may be good and bad people in banking. But the the function of it is still the the, the George Bailey element and the the top level capital element. Uh, if you're uh, something that surprises me continually when I talk to people is they have this idea that um, wherever there's an accumulation of wealth. That it's in a vault someplace, uh, yes. and and it's just sitting there doing nothing. And yep. that's not the case. If if you're if you're opening up a you know a, a mom and pop grocery store in your your local town, you know, or you're, I, I guess more pertinent to to our listeners, if, if you're opening up a really cool hip coffee shop in Brooklyn or some <laughs> other location, um, chances are you're getting a loan from somebody, and that loan's going to be from a bank, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's serving a useful feature in that capacity. Yep.
2: Yes, yeah, in the film really does point to the basic fallacy. Most people still have the idea that when they put money in the bank, it stays physically in that building. And in fact, George Bailey at one point says during the bank run, uh, as if I had the money back in the safe. Uh, people would be shocked to learn that. Uh, banks are not holding their money in a safe uh, somewhere. In fact, it was decided early in the 19th century in a famous English common law judge's decision uh, that a banking relation is not what's called a bailment. That's uh, right. It, uh, it's not where you're giving it to safekeeping to someone. The bank can invest it as they want, and yeah, that's yeah. where all the mischief in banking comes from. Yeah, the thing to remember is that this is a lo- you when you deposit
1: at the bank, you're making a loan to the bank, mm-hmm. and the bank is collecting these small loans that people are making to it, and then pooling them and lending them back out to other people, right? And that and and George Bailey's very clear about that, right? You all give me your little bits of money, I turn around, package them together, lend
2: it to someone to start a house. Yeah, the trick, of course, for the bank is to pay less interest yep. to the depositors than it gets back on the loans. That's that's, it. The, that's the problem. That's it. Yeah. That's you know, how you make
0: the money. And uh, and then if you want to make a lot of money, you can leverage what you've got and and have say we have got a hundred dollars in the bank. You can make the logical assumption that um, not every person and I'm I'm really reducing this here, but so there are a yeah. hundred people that all put in a dollar to the bank. Right. The bank can assess that it's unlikely that all hundred people are going to ask for that dollar back in the same day. Yeah, uh, and that yep. they can they can thus loan out maybe four hundred um, yep. dollars. And, and start that, that credit line.
2: Thousand
1: dollars today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and again, the, historically, right, I mean, banks banks did this for just sort of the way you describe, right, that people would come in, that, in those days with gold, and they knew that, that they could you know that the actual demands for the gold would be limited they could turn that into into productive loans and the nature of the relationship between depositors is it that that's why we call those your checking account is technically known as a demand deposit because the nature of the contract is it's payable to you on demand but it says nothing other you know about what the bank since it's a loan the bank can do with it what it what it wishes uh... in in the meantime so yeah that's the banking system as a whole is capable of creating that that multiple number of deposits off a off a. Uh, Multiple number of loans off a a particular number of deposits.
2: This is what's known as fractional reserve banking.
1: Yep, yep. that's the idea of
0: being able to leverage what you have.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that that banks only
1: hold a fraction of their outstanding liabilities at any time in the form of what you know of reserves of in in today cash in the vault or the deposits that they keep at the Federal Reserve.
0: And the the horror for a fractionalized bank would of course be a bank run, correct? Yep, where everybody comes in to get their money, and thus uh, I have loaned out. $400 $400 million, I only have a, a $200 million that are actually something that I can get to, and everybody's coming okay. in at once, which is unanticipated. Yep. And so we get run into a lot of trouble.
2: Yep. Probably and, more like $40 million would happen.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah,
2: the rest yeah. And the, and the, the problem with Trump the bank run,
1: and we have to distinguish two things illiquidity from unsolvency, right? Mm-hmm. And most bank runs are usually illiquidity in the sense that the bank simply doesn't have enough cash on hand to meet those demands. It has enough assets that if it could liquidate those assets quickly enough, it would have the cash to pay off its its depositors. So the bank isn't uh, isn't insolvent; it's just illiquid. Uh, And and what we see in the film is exactly that 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 you know people get worried about the about the Bailey's Bank, and so they come in uh, and they start wanting to cash their deposits. But notice the bank has a mechanism to protect itself against this, which is the sixty day clause. That's why that thing is there. And historically, the reason for that was so if a bank got run, the banks had to, had, could buy time, in essence, liquidate other assets, get the cash they need to pay off their to pay off the depositors. That was the nature of the contract.
0: Well, so at of curiosity, then, if that was the the nature of the contract, why why was there a bank holiday declared by FDR? Like like, and my my mem- my memory's spotty well, here, and I apologize no, for you... putting you guys on the on the spot, but um, F- FDR declares a bank holiday um, in an effort to forestall financial collapse, yep. which happens anyway. Uh, yeah. And uh, but but were, were these all direct deposit runs that were being right. done? They were all the,
1: the the banks that were collapsing were not savings and loans. They they were commercial banks and the commercial bank your checking account does not have that clause in it. And, and so historically
2: versus time deposits. Right
1: versus right right. Like so, so so the commercial banks are, are, are demand deposits yep and those demand deposits don't have that clause. So those banks had to I mean historically those banks came up with some other mechanisms to try to, to try to deal with this problem uh, and, and you know again by the time we this movie's taking place we already have deposit insurance that came in in 1934. so that's not it's interesting that's never talked about here. In in any way, but but presumably, you know, it, these banks could have been insured by the FDIC or FSL, the Savings and Loan version, uh, uh, the, the Federal Insurance Corporation. So so again, there's all kinds of complexities here uh, that are worth that are worth talking about. Can I actually, as you brought up the Great Depression, Andrew, I want to make one other point sure. that that this film completely you know overlooks in its heroic portrayal of the small banker. Um, the, the U.S. during the Great Depression, the U.S. lost about a third of its banks. About about 10,000 out of 30,000 banks failed in the United States. By contrast, Canada had zero bank failures during the Great Depression. Why is that? Well, the reason is is that the US has long had and they're gone now, but at the time, had very strict limits on banks geographic diversity. Banks couldn't operate across state lines. And so the US had 30,000 very small banks like George Baileys, right? And the problem with those banks is that they're small and undiversified. And so they're so, very. So if, they, if,
0: they, if the crop fails in southwestern right. Iowa,
1: that bank is that's sunk, right. and everybody and with assets is, in the bank is sunk. You got it. And wow. so these banks be failed by the thousands during the Great Depression because they could, they had nowhere else to go to diversify their risk, no other places to draw on. By contrast, Canadian banks have always been able to operate nationwide. They were geographically diversified. Some of them closed down branches during the Great Depression, but none of them failed. And it's certainly much better to have to drive to the next town to get your money than not have your money at yes, all. That's yeah.
2: so, so, so. a point that we think of local banks right. as the ideal, but there's no reason to think that. That's a local right. bank right. will be less sound, less right. diversified, and right. the 900-pound gorilla we haven't been talking about here. We've been talking about banking independently of government regulation. Yep, yep. And the fact is it's the government regulation that creates the problems, yep, not yep. the banks themselves.
0: And, Absolutely. and here, yep. here we get into the boom and bust, which I am uh, eager to get into. Um, as, as If we skip forward a number of years, it is, in fact, some very bad government regulations coupled with banking practices, which I think led to the uh, recession which we're currently involved in. Yeah, and
1: and I would I would I mean it's a combination of multiple things, but certainly, the banking system has always been heavily regulated, and and the way in which the, that government policies were were being used to to divert funds into the housing market. Again, one of the things, of course, we see in the film is that it's great to own a house, right? That's everyone should own a house. Mm-hmm. And we certainly built all kinds of policies on that. And we had a Federal Reserve System we also haven't mentioned much about um, in, the, in the last decade that was, that was expanding, you know, excessively expanding the money supply, driving interest rates down. So there was funds to be borrowed. There were, in, there were politic, political regulations and incentives to drive that into the housing market. We got the housing boom. We got all these crazy financial instruments built on top of it. And down comes the house of cards.
2: Yeah, we really have to get down to basics here and realize that ideally the banking system is designed to allocate credit and yep, to channel yep. it into the most productive forms. Now, this whole business of savings and loans, uh, which essentially were propped up by the government and in many ways created by the government, was a massive effort uh, to uh, uh, increase the funds specifically for building homes. Now that was not necessarily the right economic allocation of the capital. And you could say that for 50, 60 years this country has been diverting far too much money into the private housing market uh, compared to other nations. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not as if there's infinite capital. There's infinite money uh that the banking system can generate but it doesn't generate any new capital mm-hmm. so if mm-hmm. you take those bricks and the mortar and the wood and the copper and put them into homes you're not putting them into factories mm-hmm. uh and very likely slowing down the overall rate of economic growth uh, you know, I laugh at this film in one sense, with its counterfactual, what would the life world have been like without George Bailey? Well, supposing in a counterfactual, the evil Henry Potter had gotten together with George's friend and invested in this new plastics process <laughs> and created some incredible, genuine economic boom that yeah, everyone yeah. would have been bened- benefited for, far outweighing the measly efforts of George Bailey. <laughs> Which ends- you know and you can you can rescue you can rescue Potter's
1: character in other ways too I mean you know one of the ways to think about it is we we have or at least in 1946 we had a banking system with 20,000 little monopolists right the, these these little small town bankers like George Bailey where a guy like Potter I mean if we think of him as being part of this sort of larger more diversified I mean those were the good guys those were the guys that that were actually doing what banks are supposed to do which is to again ge- to diversify their investments and, and generate the kinds of growth that that, that Paul's talking about so yeah. I mean and, and the other quick point of course is you know what these movies always assume intentions and outcomes are the same so the evil guy the, the self-interested banker must be producing evil outcomes well, look. You know, we know what markets do is they channel people's self-interest to, to, to positive unintended consequences, and we never actually see whether Potter's lending practices were doing exactly what Paul's talking about. We're gen, we're leading to capital formation, real capital formation, by actually making smarter lending decisions than the charity ward that that Bailey's running.
2: Yeah, well, look at the fact that Potter's bank is not illiquid. Now, yeah. the problem with savings as loans is they make long-term loans. Uh, 25, 30 years, commercial banks make 90-day loans. That's why they're more liquid. So when yep. these people needed their money, Potter had it. Yep. Now he's going to give him 50 cents on the dollar, but as they say, 50 cents is better than nothing. For all I know, he pays more interest to his depositors. He, 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 he probably can. He yeah. probably can. Yeah.
0: Well, and, and I'll throw out too, I was watching the film and uh, uh, me, me being born in the late 20th century, uh, Pottersville looks like more fun than oh, Bedford Falls.
1: Absolutely. And let me tell you something. I, I would much rather live in Pottersville than Bedford Falls. And I actually live in a place that's kind of like Bedford Falls. So I can tell you, <laughs> right, that you want, you'd rather, I'd rather be in Pottersville.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like I was watching it and he's walking through and he's going like, oh no, there's, there's a dancing club with girls and multiple <laughs> bars. And I'm like, well, that that sounds way that's, better that's than the, right. the old Elks Lodge you've been hanging out at. I'd rather go there, actually.
2: Well, this gets us to a more fundamental point about the movie. It is this celebration of small-town America. And yet, in fact, it shows how stultifying uh, small-town America is. And the amazing thing is before things go wrong, you see how nasty it is. Look at what happens with George when uh, uh, Billy misplaces the money. Suddenly, he becomes the nastiest guy in town. Uh, He says, uh, what's the... Uh, Where's that money, you silly, stupid old fool? He says to Thomas Mitchell, uh, uh, and he says, One of us is going to jail, well, it's not going to be me. Uh, This town breeds some real nastiness Uh, when his kids start pestering him. he says, what's the matter with our car? Isn't it good enough for you? You see what a deeply frustrated man, uh, yes. George, as he calls a uh, potter frustrated. But he's sacrificed, given up all his goals to live in this. Dinky little small town while his friend goes off and invents plastics and his brother is productive in some other industry as well. And celebrated celebrated as a hero for doing it,
1: right? I mean, that's there's a, you know, from a, I'm sure that Ayn Rand wrote about this film at some point. I can't recall off the top of my head, but I can only imagine what she had to say.
0: Well, I, I, you know, be, be, hailing from a, a very square uh, middle state uh, in America, I, I do appreciate the small town bit, and I, I like—I mean, I—I—I I, I, I got emotional during the film. I got very wistful of it, but at the same time, uh, even though I liked it and I, I liked the whole—you um, know—celebration of personal responsibility and George Bailey and, and sacrifice. Uh, um, I will say that there is a simulacrum element to the film that that I find amusing, and that. Um, you know, there's these horrible things happening in succession in in the alternate universe where George Bailey doesn't exist. His brother has died. Uh, All the young men on that transport his brother saved have died. Uh, Mr. Gower's gone to jail. And then he says, show me Mary. And Mary is, in this horrifying moment in the film, is an unmarried librarian. That's it. She's not in pain. Right, right. (laughs) Nothing terrible has happened to this woman. She's simply not married. And this is a terrible fate. Yes.
1: Oh, so awful. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's, w- it's a wonderful life if you're white, male, and heterosexual. That's
2: yeah, it's a very small-minded, small town. I mean, the first sign that something is wrong in Pottersville is that an African-American is playing hunky-tonk piano yeah. in the bar, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, as if that's the most evil thing, instead of that servant in the uh, uh, Bailey household who is all but a slave or playing a role that, you know, comes yeah. out of the Old South. Yeah, I mean, you really, you really see how narrow-minded this vision of America is. Go ahead, Paul. No, I'm, uh,
1: go I'm just gonna say, I mean, I've lived in, in, in this town of 7,000 people now for, for over 25 years, so I, I've lived at this. And, and and it. you know, it's one of these things where, where it's, I think if you grow up in a place like that then leave, it's easy to be wistful. But when you experience it for many years as an adult, you know, you, the stultifying and the and the closeness of it and the, and the insularity of it become become a, a lot. And and, I, you know, it's, it's one of these things I don't know. I you know Paul would know more about Capra than I do, but it, it always this film strikes me as a film about small towns written by someone who really hasn't lived there as an adult. And again, I, I may be wrong no, about I can see that. I mean, but... like,
0: like when, when I watch this, I get wistful not for where I grew up, which was on the edge of a very large city, but for my my cousin's life, which is in a small town that I visit once a year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, get, I I yeah. my my understanding of small towns is intrinsically right. linked to Christmas and Thanksgiving yep. when I'm surrounded by family and love. Yep. Like, yeah, and, and you
1: and we and we as much the same way we do with much history we we romanticize it the same way we romanticize rural life right historically we wrote I think people romanticize small town life in ways that when you actually live it you realize that that the romantic version of it is is it's a piece of it but it's not the whole thing
2: sure well, and film is deeply contradictory in an inner a sense in that what did more to subvert small town culture in history than Hollywood I mean, the thing that strikes me about Pottersville is Pottersville is created by Hollywood. All that neon. (laughs) Uh, uh, On the one hand, you know, the best that uh, uh, Bedford Falls offers is the Bells of St. Mary and one other feature. really boring movie and you got only one movie in town basically to choose from. Whereas look at all those entertaining things you can do in Pottersville. You can <laughs> jitterbug, and you got the Bamboo Club and mm-hmm. uh, it's so funny because uh, Hollywood represents the antithesis of everything this film claims to stand for It was financed by immigrant Jews using the most uh, advanced methods of financing and, and uh, it's it's nothing like a savings loan association worked on the principles of Mr Potter
0: yeah this this was not a small organic artisanal mom-and-pop right. Hollywood production is what you're saying
1: right and, and this is interesting you know this has been a running theme As we've done these over the last few months, right? The way in which Hollywood venerates the very things that 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 don't that would otherwise put the other way. The way Hollywood despises the very things that makes Hollywood possible, right? Mm -hmm. And and that there's a kind of weird, you know. Progressive self hatred. There, it's it's Michael Moore living in the mansion, railing against capitalism and against the very system that made him wealthy. Right. So that that tension is at the heart of a number of things we've talked about over these. Over Absolutely. These episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I
0: I, I, just, I thought of a couple more things that that are, are anecdotal of, of being in that that time period. Like they're fairly cavalier about Jimmy Stewart drunk driving. Uh, now that <laughs> I think about it, like he, he yeah. crashes his car into a tree, and the guy's like, "Oh, go home, you drunk." Like I
2: mean, and, nowadays, and that thing, you, you well, could, that was. It's, it's, the neighbor says, Now look what you did. My great right. grandfather planted this tree. Right. And again, that's the sense that this town is being mired in the past. And, yep. and actually, people are really nasty. The husband of that teacher, that Jimmy yep. Stewart, yep. Oh, yeah. he just comes in and punches him. It's a nasty little town. <laughs> and that car, by the way, just to point out, right? That tells you something about cars from
1: the 40s. That thing was made out of steel because it hits that tree and it's just like a little dent in the bumper. <laughs> you know, no airbag. Today, it would have crumpled, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Because it was, you know, uh, the other thing I noticed, by the way, there was this—the images of of World War II rationing and recycling were, were there's a scene in there, right, where we where where we we get a sense of what it was really like at home during the war, right? Uh, and this is something I've written about professionally, and we we have this view of World War II getting us out of the Great Depression, but in fact, life in the United States during World War II for most families was pretty awful because we we had all this wartime rationing and recycling. So you see a little bit of that in the kind of you know. Well, coming up actually to
0: to, to to go back to this now we're we, they glaze over the, the Great Depression they don't really go into great detail but is, is this is I think the only film that we've we've Got to that is even within frisbee distance of the Great Depression. What what are what are some of the big myths that are are present in our culture from that era? Because I I was raised um, in in a, in a public school system in Oklahoma, which is a very red state, but nonetheless FDR is clearly the savior of right. the United States, and it's because he enacted these very large uh, programs, um, and uh, that he then took us to World War II, and it's just sort of assumed that Keynesian military spending got right. us out of the depression, and that. Um, the depression, which lasted quite a few years and involved rationing and all these other things. What what do you see as the the, uh, fallacies that are are still being uh, perpetuated?
1: Well, I'm teaching my senior seminar on the Great Depression as we speak. Well, not literally as we speak, but this semester. So I've been uh, wrapped up in this. I mean, there's usually when I talk about this, I talk about what I call the high school history version of the Great Depression. And there's kind of four fallacies. But let me focus on one. The one that bothers me the most. Is the belief that Herbert Hoover was a devotee of laissez faire and, and yeah, free markets? I
2: noticed yeah. that Hoover's pictures on the wall during the bank run. Yeah, they, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and that that is so I mean that that is so far wrong any you know anything about Hoover's history he was an interventionist he believed in the power of government from day 1 when he got into office and the depression hit the first thing he did is start mobilizing you know resources he was proud he ran on his record of having engaged the federal government in ways that no other candidate had before I mean well, he,
0: there is a he, rather he, large dam named after him if i'm not
1: mistaken which would indicate some degree of government spending Indeed, um, but but this sort of whole myth, and it's and and we even see it today in the Paul Krugmans, right? Sort of use, using Hoover as their whipping boy for laissez-faire. But the reality, I mean, the reality is utterly different from that. You can go on and on. Even Roosevelt's advisors pointed to Hoover as being the the originator of many of the programs that that they cap they took as part of the New Deal. So that myth, to me, thats I've spent you know years now fighting that myth in the blogosphere and, and everywhere else. So that's know, a, if, if
0: I'm not mistaken, FDR ran um, initially as a small government states' rights Democrat.
1: At uh, least a balanced budget, anyway.
0: Yeah. Uh, Paul, what, what do you think are some of the, the myths that are being uh, perpetrated uh, of, of the Great Depression of this era that, that have, have infiltrated our, our school system and minds?
2: Well, it was the banking system that created the Great Depression. Here I'll go into the Austrian theory of the business cycle. And by the way, I recommend Murray Rothbard's book, The Great Depression. People want to understand this in depth uh but uh it's government policy with regard to banking that creates these artificial booms, uh that by creating uh all sorts of bank reserves and printing money and uh especially by artificially lowering interest rates, uh uh governments induce businessmen uh to uh inaugurate uh, unsustainable business projects. That's what the boom is. Uh, uh, the signals being given by interest rates indicate that there's more savings than there actually is, and it leads people to uh, uh, not simply overinvest but malinvest in projects to undertake projects for which there isn't underlying capital or even long term underlying demand. And the so called bust is actually the correction, yep. it's the economically sound moment when these. Uh, ill-advised projects are liquidated, uh, giving the market a chance to get started over again. Uh, but indeed, the the, the, the hidden uh, point in this film is that it's The the problem with the banking system is not that it doesn't loan enough money, but in fact it loans too much money and does it irresponsibly. Precisely by this pyramiding, precisely by this fractional reserve banking. And and, Um, I mean, make two quick (laughs) points
1: there.
2: Fractional reserve,
1: at least for me anyway, fractional reserve banking isn't a problem in and of itself. Right. Uh, There's nothing wrong with fractional reserve banking that wouldn't be solved by getting rid of central banks. Right. The problem is you have the Fed, as Paul pointed out generating these additional reserves out of nowhere that then become the sort of base on which this other stuff gets built you know without a central bank banks banks will still have fractional reserve system but they can't they can't create money from nothing in those systems that the, the the fact that they're able to create these multiples of loans reflects ultimately reflects real willingness of people to provide savings to the to the system yeah. so, so is um, that?
0: Uh, I was gonna ask you a follow-up question you know we we've sort of um uh, Poo-poo distributivism and th- this idea that it's good to have lots of very local, unconnected um, bank entities. Uh, the the reason that a very very large monolithic bank entity would be bad would be then because at least in the it, case of the Fed, it can create money out of nothing. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's it, it had the Fed has a monopoly over the creation of currency for one thing, right? Mm-hmm. So it can you know it can create as much currency as it wants and it can declare as it has that that's not redeemable in anything. So it's the it, Fed's it, monopoly position. Uh, that that enables it to to sort of create uh, money ex nihilo, right? Sort of sort of out of nothing in those ways.
2: At least, yeah. And let's let's remember the Fed is a perfect example of crony capitalism. We saw it in the recent banking crisis, but it's right there at the foundation. The Fed was uh, created essentially at the prompting of J. P. Morgan and the banking industry so that they could uh... A loan more and more money, and have the Fed as their backup, so that there was a when there'd be a run on the bank, you'd go to the Fed to create reserves that you could then draw yeah. upon. And it's and it's,
1: it's, it's worth yeah, it's worth noting that our central bank is called the Federal Reserve System, uh, and and that ability to create and manipulate reserves was the key, and a lot of it grew out of the panics of the of the era before the Fed. Where where the inability to get reserves to where they needed to be was a problem, though that was a problem created by the various regulations of that system. Even though there was no central bank before the Fed, the federal government still regulated banking and money production in ways that created these problems.
0: And 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 still does. There there were a lot of. I mean, with with the uh, most most of the. Ire with central planning the last few years has been with Obamacare. Uh, if you're if you're coming from a small government perspective, but there was also a lot of banking reform that that yep. happened just before that, and uh, I I was personally furious at Dick Durbin because he'd put in an amendment that uh, that, eight uh, uh, banks could no longer charge ATM fees. Which sounds wonderful, but then what happened was my bank just started increasing the fees on my checking account because yep. that the, all they do is shuffle. It was how did you not see this coming, Dick Durbin? And uh, and then when you you apply that to some of the other things they were doing, like uh, um, there's everybody talks about Glastigall, which is uh, the the division between uh, I think what would you call it commercial banking and residential banking or commercial banking and, uh, and investment and uh, investment. investment banking thank you. Yeah. Uh, and everybody's like, well we, we have to reenact this and I, I don't think anybody has claimed that that had anything to do with the recession that we're experiencing. even yeah. Paul Krugman is not citing that as the source but nonetheless we're we're building this up and whenever you um, whenever you make it more difficult to to lend money, Um, which is to say you you erect barriers, you force banks to separate, they can't borrow from themselves, they can't borrow from each other. When you do that, you're making capital more scarce, and that means there's fewer jobs being created at the same time. It actually draws the problem out. So you you can claim that that might be a better security system, but you also have to accept that you're going to slow down the economy at the same time.
1: And and Glass Steagall was passed in the Great Depression, and it was passed based on a, on a misreading of the facts, which was the belief at the time was that one of the reasons so much stock market speculation had taken place was that the banks were taking money from their regular commercial depositors and channeling it to the investment side of the house into the stock market, and so there was all these hearings in the early '30s trying to vilify the bankers and they they convinced themselves that this is what was happening so we had to erect this distinction between the two kinds of banking but subsequent research has demonstrated that that wasn't there was none of that happening it was it was it was simply a you know it was a, it was a moral panic of a sort it was invented there was no reason to think that that's what the banks were doing and in fact even in the great recession some countries like germany that have had universal banking that don't have those distinctions you know didn't have any didn't have any problems so so clearly it's not the, the problems in the US were not the result of having, in the Great Recession, of having repealed Glass-Steagall. In fact, Glass-Steagall wound up being really important in enabling the failing, some of the failing investment banks to convert to commercial banks in the heat of the crisis that enabled them to survive in ways they wouldn't have otherwise.
0: Yeah, Well, uh, we're going to wrap up here in a moment. Um, I want to kind of try and modernize what we're, what we're dealing with in the movie a little bit. So, Paul, I'll kick this to you. I think the, the modern equivalent of Potter would be a hedge fund manager. Um, somebody that's incredibly, incredibly wealthy, dealing with lots and lots of money that doesn't seem like they're um, very approachable to what the average person's doing. Um, do you see benefits to hedge fund managers and other people that are you know, in the upper echelons of investment and, uh, and, and or banking? And uh, are, are, are they good? And what purpose do they
2: serve? Well, I can't make a universal statement because some are good and some are bad. On the good side, what we're talking about is channeling what capital we've accumulated into the most productive uh, methods of investment. And some uh, hedge fund managers, some bankers are very good at that. Uh, And again, that would be my point about this altered universe. There's an altered universe in which Potter may have made some fantastic investments that improved Mm. life. For all we know, we could have invested in what would have turned out to be a home computer in 1947, and we would have been (laughs) decades. Uh, I mean, if you're gonna dream the way this film does, I could dream that. So, uh, uh, to the extent that uh, uh, financial managers are doing their job, I applaud them. The problem is, in the easy money money environment created by the Fed, there are too many opportunities to make money without doing anything productive with it. Uh, and uh, I find many bankers as evil as this film does, but for very different uh, reasons. Where I come from, people call them banksters uh, <laughs> for that reason. Uh, 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 Bankers have pursued their own financial interests uh, at the expense of the American public. Yes, the mm-hmm. creation of the Federal Reserve is a perfect example of that.
1: And and I would just add that the focus on the good or evil of the people is the problem, right? <laughs> yeah. The question is, what are the rules of the game? What's the system? What's the institutions with they they play with it? You can be a nasty, cranky old potter, right? But you can still generate wealth and generate good consequences if the if the rules and institutions under which you operate force you to to meet that you know to to, uh, to achieve your greedy goals by actually allocating resources in, in the right kinds of ways as Paul is saying so you can be a nice guy you can be a bastard right either way <laughs> if, if the if, but the but the you gonna follow the incentives and knowledge signals that are set up by the rules of uh, an institutions under which you play so let's get the focus off whether the people are good or bad let's look at how the system operates and whether that's creating good or bad results
2: Yeah, and let's look what's going on now and has been going on for years is the Federal Reserve is keeping uh, uh, interest rates artificially low. It means average people can't get a decent return on their money unless they take bigger and bigger risks. That's, That's the nightmare of what's going on and that people won't criticize the Fed for, but people can invest... in in, in simple money market certificates anymore. They have to go into more and more complicated investments and accept the risk, and I think they're going to pay a lot for that risk uh, in the the coming times. Uh, If you keep interest rates artificially low, you screw up an entire economy, not the least of which uh, retired people, people trying to build a retirement nest egg, and so on.
0: An uh, uh-huh. excellent point, um, and and that's yet another example of the unintended consequences of centralized planning leading to greater risk, which is what we generally want to avoid yep. uh, when we're when we're saving in banks. Uh, so uh, we're going to finish up here in a moment. Any closing thoughts, uh, Paul or Steve? Paul, I'll start with you. Uh,
2: again, I want to get back to the fundamental point of the whole notion <laughs> of savings and loans. Uh, I can imagine such institutions organically developing in a free market, but in the history of the United States what we've seen is a tremendous effort to divert capital into the building of private homes. That is not the most logical use of the capital and probably has held back our economic growth enormously in this century. This notion, this romanticizing of owning your own home, uh, there's a lot of logic to renting, for example. People would be more mobile if they were renting. Uh many Germ- ways. Germany's
0: like that, isn't it? Like Germany yeah. has much more of a renter culture.
2: Yeah, and, and many yeah, many
1: countries do. I yeah. I would just add to Paul's comments, right, that we um what people really fail to appreciate is the degree to which our banking and finance system is a product of government regulation, continues to be one of the most heavily regulated parts of the system. So whenever people want to start blaming banks or bankers or financiers or hedge fund managers or wolves of wall street or whomever for all these problems they're often correct in pointing a finger to those areas as being problems but not because they're so competitive or so free market or so deregulated but precisely because they are these overregulated crony capitalists you know, interfered with systems that have distorted signals, distorted incentives and, and lead to a mess. And so, we, yeah, it's right oftentimes to blame bankers and financiers and or the system for problems, but the nature of those problems are not because they have too much power or too much freedom, but because of their they're their lining up with government power.
0: Excellent points both. Paul, Steve, thank you tremendously for your input. And for those listening, thank you for listening. Remember that every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, but every time you listen to our podcast, an angel gets drunk. So we're glad that you listen to us. <laughs> That's uh,
1: Pottersville.
0: Yep, you gets drunk at Pottersville. Thank you, guys. Yeah. This has been the Econ Pop Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information about our show or to visit our archives, go to econstories.tv. To watch the Econ Pop web series, go to youtubecom econstories. It's like this show, only shorter and with moving pictures.